welcome back to Looking Outside. Today you are in for a really motivating conversation. I've been speaking to a lot of people lately who incidentally say the same thing to me, that they are really self-motivated. They generate a lot of ideas. They can't help but sign themselves up to start new things, even if they're already stretched. And they feel bad when they're either doing nothing or they like to invest in themselves and into the future. So on the show today, we have someone who not only speaks to other people who do this all the time, but is the same way inclined. So a huge welcome to the show to Jason Pfeiffer. Hey, Jason. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's start with a little a bit of an intro into who you are. Sure. So I am the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. I also produce a whole lot of other stuff for myself. I wrote a book called Build for Tomorrow, an action plan for embracing change, adapting fast, and future-proofing your career. I write a newsletter called One Thing Better. I host podcasts. I'm a startup advisor. And generally, the thing that I love to do is connect with people, learn from them, understand how people think, and then turn around and help others calibrate to what it means to build and grow and what others have learned a couple of paces ahead of them. That's the thing that helped me throughout my career as I reinvented myself many times. I have a media background, but I've really spent the last number of years transforming myself into a, a kind of all-purpose Swiss Army knife kind of person in the entrepreneur space and have been just incredibly inspired by the way that entrepreneurs think and have found it to be an incredibly useful skill, regardless of what it is that you're trying to achieve. Yeah, definitely. And we'll go into that a little bit more into the learnings that you've had in speaking with entrepreneurs, because that's a really rich area. I'd love to just start with what you said at the very beginning, which is that you help others. Do you feel like a lot of the things that you're venturing out into and stretching yourself into, so you mentioned like editing the magazine, but also then writing a book and public speaking and the podcast, that that also like, helps others, but also helps you? Like how much of it is about challenging yourself and stretching yourself? Oh, well, I think you need to be doing both, right? The I mean, unless I wanted to live a monastic lifestyle where I, I just went out into the, the hills and dedicated myself to sending good vibes to people. Like, you know, you got to do things that are helping you too. You got to build real businesses that support the things that you want to do. I think of this in two ways as you break that down. Okay. So let's talk about helping others. Uh, you know, look, it's fine to say, I want to help others. This is a, it's a wonderful, <laughs> it's a wonderful mission. I don't know that anybody would say that they do otherwise. What I found though, in my own career, very interestingly, was that I went from being very interested in the craft, in the creation of a product. I, I spent most of my career as a magazine editor and I was fascinated by making magazines. And I think that I showed up every day really thinking about how to make a great product that I was proud of and that impressed my peers. And when I got to Entrepreneur Magazine, I started experimenting with this different kind of writing, which was a very direct to the reader, relating to them on a personal way kind of writing, which I had never done. I was a reporter. I went out and I interviewed people and I told these elaborate stories, the things that they did. And then I just started talking directly to people and looking for ways to be of direct service. And I was doing that because I was following the audience's lead. I could see that the entrepreneur audience wanted that. And the thing that shocked me was the shift in response. 
When I made a great magazine, I worked at Men's Health, for example, I made a great magazine. It's a really fun, poppy magazine. And I would write these profiles of these celebrities and athletes. You know, I almost never heard from readers, never. And then I started writing directly to people and I started relating to them on a personal level. And I started hearing from them all the time. And they would say things like, I really needed to hear that today. They would say things like, I've been grappling with this exact thing and this is, this is what I needed to make this hard decision. And I realized there was just an incredible power in showing up every day with your audience in mind, not with your project in mind. The project follows the audience, not the other way around. And so when I say that I like helping others, I, I, I do. I found it to be incredibly gratifying. But also, selfishly, as you say, it was, it was the way to build. It was the path that I found that I could make something that was meaningful to people, that people wanted, that they would react to and respond to. And I think that that's what we want in business. We want to find something that is fulfilling a need. When you put something out in the world and people come back and tell you, this is exactly what I needed, you know you're doing something right. And that's good for them. And yeah, it's good for me too. Correct me if, if I'm wrong here, though. I think that a lot of people would perceive being an editor anyway, which, you know, is what you've been doing for the majority of your career. They kind of had this idea of an editor being behind the scenes, right? It's like the, the magician behind the curtain. And now what you're doing is very much in the public space. And I can imagine slash understand that when you put yourself out on the stage, you're, you're much more vulnerable. So was that transition very intentional for you or did it kind of happen incidentally? It was an opportunity that I recognized. So you're right. An editor is generally behind the scenes. And for the majority of my career, I was behind the scenes. I was always an editor who was interested in writing. So I would write, but you know, people don't pay attention to bylines. And even if you've got a big story in the magazine, nobody really notices that it's yours. And then when I became editor-in-chief, people started treating me differently. They didn't really understand me as an editor or a journalist anymore. They saw me as an authority. And at first, that was not something I was comfortable living up to. I, I thought, I, I'm, a, I'm a storyteller. I'm a guy who, who helps others tell their stories. I, I'm not someone who you listen to myself. <laughs> but, I, and for a while, like, I would try to reel it back. People would have me on their podcasts and they would introduce me as a thought leader in entrepreneurship. And I would be like, well, you know, and, and I was really, I was like ruining the reason that they had me on their show. And eventually when I, what I came to recognize was that if I could live up to the thing that people thought of me, there was a large opportunity to be had. But what it would require was a rethinking of who I am and how I work and a real investigation into what it is that I have to say and how to say it. And this isn't just about me. I, I would posit that everybody listening to this right now has that kind of opportunity in front of them. If you are willing to deeply reconsider who you are to people and what it is that you have to offer them, and I don't mean this in a fraudulent way. I just mean in thinking deeper about the things that you have and the more direct connection that you can make to your consumer and find a way in which you are living up to the largest opportunity in front of you. It is not easy. It could take years of work. It took years of work for me. But the result of it was something that's far more lasting and more satisfying than just being the thing that I had originally set out to be. I think that in, in basically every moment, we have 
the decision to make of whether or not to be the thing that we set out to be or to be the thing that we have the opportunity to be. And th- those those are distinct things. I think that obviously that requires a, a level of self-reflection and, and the ability to re-perceive yourself, but also then acting on that and actually creating something out of that requires a level of bravery as well, right? So in yourself and what you've done, and I guess the entrepreneurs that you've spoken with, is that also like a key element of it is that you almost have to put a lot of risk into what you're doing because you're moving the reflection, self-reflection, rethinking into action. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I'll answer that, but I'm just going to I'm just gonna kind of um, work out loud here for a second and tell you something that I just did as you were asking that question, <laughs> which is, uh, which is, is people ask me, how do I produce the amount of content that I produce? Because it's a lot of content. You know, I post on social media every day. I have this newsletter, uh, writing for the magazine all the time and more podcasts. And so one of the things that I, I do is I, I use moments of interactions with other people as testing grounds for ideas. Sometimes ideas that I just came up with, like literally as I was saying them. And, and if, I, if something pops out of my mouth and I think that's a good framework that I haven't quite explored more specifically, or maybe it's part of a conversation that I have with somebody and it gets me thinking about something, I go in and I put it in my reminders app. I have a, a, mm. like a tab in my reminders app called social and newsletters. And that's the collection of ideas that I'll draw upon for future newsletters or whatever. And so when I just said to you, the, 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 be the thing you set out to be versus being the thing you had the opportunity to be, that that is not I, it's not language that I had used before. It just kind of came out as we were talking. And as I said it, I thought, that's a good newsletter. And so I just wrote it down as you said it. Um, and so I can, I just, I would encourage everybody if you're in any kind of content making role, which I think everybody should be, because even if it's not your job, you should be posting on LinkedIn, you should be creating in some way. Um, and you're wondering, well, what do I write about? The answer is often uh, mine your own experiences and your own interactions for the best content, because you're producing things all the time. You're just not capturing them. So anyway, to your question, yeah, sure. It requires tremendous risk. Uh, but you know what? It, it feels a lot less risky once you step back and redefine what it is that you do. Something that I I advise everybody to do is to come up with a mission statement for themselves. I, I call it the thing that does not change in times of change. And what I, I what I would invite you to do right now is to think about how could you write a sentence that describes what you do, that states what you do. The sentence is short, as few words as possible. It starts with I. Every word after that is carefully selected because it is not anchored to something that's easily changeable. So for example, I am a magazine editor is bad. Why? Because it could change in in a heartbeat. Uh, all, all it takes is getting fired from a magazine or a magazine closing down or there being layoffs or whatever. And then I am not a magazine editor anymore. So how do you choose words, choose a definition for yourself in which every word is not easily changeable? The answer is that you have to dig deeper into the core of what it is that you do. Here's for me. It's not I'm a magazine editor. It is I tell stories in my own voice. Seven words. I tell stories in my own voice. It doesn't matter what happens in my career. I can still do that. I tell stories. I'm I'm telling you stories right now. This is literally what I'm doing. Uh, I, and then uh, I can tell stories on stage in a 
podcast and in a newsletter and any number of ways. I can be hired as a consultant for a company and come in and tell them stories about what other entrepreneurs did as, as a way of helping them think through their own problems. In my own voice is me setting the terms for how I want to operate at this stage of my career. I wouldn't have said in my own voice 10 years ago. I was figuring out my voice. Anyway, the purpose of this is that once you have that deeper, more flexible understanding of yourself, the changes in front of you start to feel less risky because they start to feel like new opportunities to express the thing that you're best at. Because if if I'm a magazine editor, I have a very narrow path for how to express what I'm good at. If I tell stories in my own voice, I have a much broader way of understanding my value and I can evaluate a far wider range of opportunities. This is the thing that I went through. This is ultimately what I did. And I came to realize that once I thought of myself as someone who tells stories, I was able to scale in all of these different ways in a way that didn't really feel that much like a risk. It just felt uncomfortable doing it for the first time. And, you know, I mean, that's a big part of the reason why, you know, I connected with you, stalked you on LinkedIn, because I, I love everything that you post on there. And I love the podcast. And now I'm obviously like, shout out, you read, read my book, book yeah. which, which you I'm just getting a read, lot out of. Um, Thank you. But I mean, it's very true that there are so many people on LinkedIn now who are just starting to post more content, are starting to mm -hmm. figure out, like getting clued into the fact that even though they come from like a tiny subset of philosophers and academia, or they come from government, or they come from like just, I don't know, consumer research inside of a small brand, whatever it might be, their content is resonating with people because they have something to say that is unique and is different and is helpful and it's thought provocative. I guess connected into that is a question that I have for you. And you actually wrote about this in the book, which was like a huge aha moment for me which is that, you know, if people are trying to figure out, you know, what what is my mission statement? What is it about me that makes me unique that I can amplify? I think a lot of the times we think, well, maybe that's just me right now. Maybe that's just like a fluke or like I often used to say about myself, I am lucky. And so what's really powerful in the book, you said, you know, what if my success was specific to that moment and not able to be repeated? I think you said this before you were promoted into one of the one of the next roles that you moved into. I think a lot of people struggle with that. Like they really think through that is, is it just a point in time where I'm doing well or is this me? So how, how do you work through that kind of self-doubt? Yeah, it's a, it's a great and important point. And just to orient people, I, the first time that I got a big job offer, which was to move to New York and work for Men's Health and leave where I was at the time, which was Boston Magazine, a thing that I really worried about was, what if my success at Boston Magazine, where I'd done well, I made friends, I was doing good work, what if that was what if that was very specific to that time, and couldn't be repeated, and therefore what I should do is just hold on to that moment as long as I could, and I, I eventually, I, I mean, that's not what I did. I, I I took the leap and I thrived at Men's Health, and then I repeated the same worry all over again um, when I got it, my, my next job offer. And this is something that I, I find that we do. We do to ourselves. Everyone does it. I, I've, I've talked to very, very successful people. I think in the book, I was talking about a, um, a, a like a very famous DJ who I talked to, uh, this guy Mick, uh, and how he has worried um, similarly. And we need to do a better job of recognizing the core skills that we have. 
And I think it's really helpful to do a self-evaluation about why some why we had succeeded in a particular moment. We think a lot about failure. We think a lot about avoiding failure. We don't spend a lot of time evaluating success, but we should. We should, because we should understand what was good about it. And I think that it's worth, if you, if you right now are concerned about not being able to repeat a success of yours, to spend some time assessing why you were successful, but take away any, like, I, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not just because of circumstance. So you're not able to consider that as your option. So you have to list out things that you actually did. What were you good at? And what you'll start getting to are these really valuable insights about how maybe you're just really good at connecting with people. You're really good at identifying what audiences need. You're really good at just being nice and likable and people want to work with you, whatever it is. I think what you'll find is that you have things that are reliable, that you don't feel like you have to search for and reach for, and that you can put into practice in the next circumstance. And then trust it. This is not an easy process. I'm sure when it's time for me to make a giant next leap, I've been an entrepreneur for a while now, I'll go through some similar thing. Am I able to do this? Do I know what I'm doing? And we do ourselves a disservice by offloading our success onto other people and other things and other circumstances. We have to own it as much as we own our failures. So true. Although in the book you talk, it's really interesting too, you talk about we do stop and reflect on how good things used to be. And this Mm -hmm. is kind of connected into the, I guess, the point that you're making as well, that when you push yourself to change and push yourself into a new situation, it's that loss aversion or that, you know, the hanging on to the the positive times of the past that maybe can't be replicated in the new future that you're building for yourself. And I just, I love that whole bit in the book where you talk about nostalgia actually doing damage and this, this, you know, idea, perfect idea of the past that we used to have that gives us positive emotions even today actually is not very helpful. No, it's not always helpful. I mean, look, nostalgia plays a, a role. It's a comfort role. We, as we face challenges, what we want to know is that we are able to create good times that there was good in our lives, there was comfort, there was familiarity, that we want that again. And we don't always just want it from the past, but the past is sometimes an easier thing to access when you are unsure what's coming in the future. And the danger that we run into is that we start to believe sometimes that the things from the past will always be better than the things in the future. And that's not true, There's a lot of interesting research into how memories are formed, which I I, I go into in depth in the book, so I I won't bore you with it all right now. But the the very short of it is is that there's uh, one part of it is that there's something called fading affect bias, which is to say that our we retain the feelings associated with good memories far longer than we retain the feelings associated with bad memories. This is often used to explain why women are willing to have more than one child because you forget the, <laughs> you know, the sort of um, emotions associated with the, the 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 unpleasantries of actually giving birth. 
But, you know, this also goes to why we are willing to take a giant risk, even though the last time we took a giant risk, it was it was a disaster or it was uh, it was really hard. You know, our brains are really designed to move us forward. They're designed to shed things that might hold us back. That, that's why we don't retain the feelings associated with bad memories, because if every time you thought about taking a risk, you conjured the feelings of what it was like the last time you took a risk and failed, you would never take another risk. But you need to take risks. You need to move forward. Your brain is selectively forgetting because it is trying to give you the opportunity to move into the future with as much boldness as possible. That's why your brain is doing that. Mm. Our brains are not remembering devices. They're forgetting devices. And... Yet, of course, the the way in which that backfires is that sometimes we think that the past was better than the future. So I, I, I tell you that to catch yourself in those moments, those moments where you are concerned about what comes next and you're starting to feel like you're more attached to the things that you used to do. What you're remembering is not entirely true. And what you're imagining comes next is only half of what it can be. Yeah, that's that's really, really powerful. And I think very hard to do, right? Because we're emotional creatures is to think mm-hmm. logically about the emotions that we're feeling or the emotions that we would have felt in the past, particularly with flawed memories. It's quite, yeah. quite an undertaking. But I think a lot of people might be also scared to do that because they're worried the more that they are willing to be open to change, the more they might lose themselves and who they are obviously like we're so wedded to our identities and who we've established ourselves to be. The problem isn't changing. The problem is defining yourself too narrowly. Mm. If you have a very, very narrow conception of yourself, I am only good at doing this thing in this circumstance. My identity is that I hold this role and I do this task. Well, you're in for a world of hurt because all of those things are going to change. Like just definitively, those things are going to change. And so if your identity is tied to hyper-specific, changeable things, then when those things change, when those things change, it won't just feel like a change to your work. It will feel like a change to your identity. But we can control it. We can think differently about what our value is. And we should. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell said to me once, I I was interviewing him for the magazine, and he said, self-conceptions are powerfully limiting. I really love that line. Self-conceptions are powerfully limiting, which is to say that if you have a narrow definition of yourself, then you will turn down all of these opportunities that you had not anticipated and had not built into the way that you see yourself. Mm. But If you're willing to let go of a very narrow understanding of yourself, then you give yourself permission to go down paths that seem maybe a little off or to explore projects that you are not sure that you're good at. You don't want to limit yourself. I mean, I think the way that Malcolm said it to me, he said, self-conceptions are powerfully limiting. And he said something like, you know, it's it's a bad way to think unless you are 90 years old. I mean, if you're 90 years old, Go ahead and have a narrow definition of yourself. That's fine. You worked, you worked hard and you lived long and you know what you're doing. But uh, everybody else, you've got a life ahead of you and you want to make sure that you're as nimble and prepared for it as possible. Mm-hmm. So you can reframe how you see yourself and then how you know others see you as well can be incredibly motivating. So Sure. 
and recognize and recognize that you have a really important role in defining that for other people. People will understand the story that you tell of yourself. So make sure that you tell the right story. Um, you, you know, it's, it reminds me, it's funny, at the very beginning of me leaning into this expertise in change, which which I, I you know, sort of grew out of the work that I do at Entrepreneur, and I, I, was, I was struggling to get some traction on a whole bunch of different things, speaking, uh, you know, this was years ago, trying to get speaking gigs on this subject and a number of other things. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a business consultant. And he said, so you want to be known as, as this guy who, who helps people through change, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, then why is that not the first thing that I see on your website? And I was like, oh, crap, you're right. Like, I hadn't <laughs> thought at all about how to frame myself. Like, I had spent a lot of time thinking about it for me, but I didn't put any energy into telling other people about it. So how was I, how was I supposed to expect anybody to understand the value that I had for them? You got to be front and center about it. You better make sure that when people see you, the work that you do on a daily basis, the way that you interact, the, the, the products that you put out in the world, that it's always telling that story. Because if it is, then that's what they'll understand. So I think connected into that, my last question for you, Jason, is, you know, when we think about the opportunities that lay in front of us, a big part of that, I think, is just getting outside of the things that you normally observe and that you normally look at. So hence the name of the show, Looking Outside, is pushing yourself into, into new areas and diverse perspectives and maybe even habits that might take you outside of your comfort zone. So what is your go-to when you're trying to do that, when you're trying to take yourself outside of yourself and look at something in a different way? I am fortunate to have a network of people who I trust, who I think are very, very smart, and who I have grown very comfortable being really open with about trying this thing. I don't know how this works. I'm not sure that this was the right decision. I think that the more in which you can surround yourself with people who you can think out loud with and gain feedback from and have people who tell you what works and what doesn't, the stronger you will ultimately be. So, I mean, I don't know. I did that today uh, in five different ways. You, you and I are speaking a couple hours after I launched a um, I launched a premium tier for for my newsletter, which is the first time that I've ever tried to monetize my audience. And uh, you know, I was pretty nervous about it. And I don't, I haven't looked at the numbers yet. I, I'm, I don't think I even will today. I think I'm going to spare myself that grief. Uh, I'll look at it tomorrow. But I I showed that draft of that email that I I wrote um, announcing it to, to a whole bunch of people. I obsessed over it. I, I talked to friends about launching their own things. I. I just I just thought out loud for a long time before I did it. And so when I did it, you know, it wasn't going to be perfect. It's not perfect. But what I know is that I talked to enough people and I expressed enough doubts that at least I think my bases are covered. At least I'm doing a educated thing. At least I'm taking what I think is a, a fairly calculated risk. And then and then I'll learn. And then I'll learn. I've already had friends who reached out and saw it and were like, that was great. Also, you might want to look at this thing, you know, and, and, and um, that's, I love that. That's fantastic. But we wouldn't have even gotten there if I hadn't sent the damn thing out in the first place. So that's how I do it. You get stuck in your own head. You get stuck in your own stuff. So just get out of it as much as possible. 
Brilliant. And I think that takes us full circle back to the very start of the conversation when you said, know yourself and what your benefit is, what your strength is that you're bringing to the public, take calculated risks and be vulnerable. So incredibly insightful. Jason, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to check out that <laughs> the premium tier or the not premium tier, <laughs> don't pay me. Just check out the free thing. Also fine. So that's a newsletter that I write, which is called One Thing Better. Uh, each week, one way to uh, be happier and more impactful at work and uh, build a career or company that you love. And uh, you can find that at onethingbetter.email. That's a web address. You can you can get the weekly email for free. And then uh, if you want, you check out this premium tier where I'm now answering reader questions in advice column format and finding all sorts of other ways to help people directly because that's uh, that's what I really love to do. So anyway, I would love for people to check that out. If you want to get in touch with me, you can also just respond to that email. It goes directly to my inbox. And then also, uh, Joe, you had mentioned my book. Uh, so that's called Build for Tomorrow. And you can find that on Amazon, Audible, uh, you know, uh, uh, audiobook, ebook, hardcover, uh, uh, whatever. If you can imagine a form of book, <laughs> then uh, it exists. Yeah, and the podcast as well, Help Wanted. And the podcast as well, Help Wanted, right? It's true. I, I, I always, I always, uh, my fear is that if you tell people too many things, they do no, none of those things. So, um, so I usually try to limit it to one or two. But yes, a podcast as well. Do do them all, or do some, or do none. It's it's, it's your world. Yeah, there's a lot of great content out there from Jason that you can check out. So yeah, thank thanks. you so much for creating another avenue for your content by coming on the show. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review or share the show and I will see you next time. Until then, keep looking outside.